Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The Democratic Party used to view the rural voter as part of its base. That shifted, with many attributing the shift to social, religious, and racial beliefs. Our guests today argue that the reasons are quite different from what we believe. Nick Jacobs and Dan Shea are professors of government at Colby College and the authors of The Rural Voter, The Politics of Place, and The Disuniting of America. Taking a look at election results over the past few decades, it shows us a flashing warning side for Democrats as the nation's urban-rural divide has deepened. Democrats have increasingly lost support for rural America. Licking County, like most rural counties in Ohio, votes Republican, and most often by a substantial margin. In 2008, though, Barack Obama narrowed that margin by several percentage points. That happened in rural counties all over the country. This was the other story for Democrats in 2018. On the House side, they won 40 seats. They won back control. The suburbs, you know, kind of were on fire for them. But on the Senate side, in places like Indiana, in places like North Dakota, in places like rural Tennessee, Republicans came out strong uh, for Trump and against the Democratic Party. In Minnesota today, President Biden kicked off a new campaign to reach rural voters as he struggles to sell his economic message ahead of next year's election. Hi, I'm Dan Shea, a lifelong student of American politics, and I am convinced that two-party competition throughout America is a good thing. I'm Nick Jacobs, and I'm working to close the rural-urban divide. Sorry, sorry not, not sorry. sorry. Nick and Dan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I want to talk about your book, but before we dig in, will you just tell us a little bit about each of you and the work that you do? Nick, you can go first. Thanks for having us, Alyssa. It's a real pleasure to be joining you. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of government at Colby College, where I study federalism and political geography. This is my second book, first one with Dan, who's also my hallway office mate. And I'm Dan Shea, professor of government here at Colby. I've written a number of books and articles. I'm a parties and elections scholar. A lot of my works explore the relationship between elections and parties and our democratic process. And my first project on rural voter, and really glad to work with Nick on this, who's a bit more of an expert than I am on this topic. You guys have had your work cut out for you for numerous reasons in the last few years. So I want to start with the present. How do people perceive the rural voter? 
Well, I don't think particularly well. We spend a lot of time in the book talking about that, and we think there are two ways to think about it. One is a popular culture lens. So maybe I'll do that at piece, and then Nick can do the news media lens. Through the popular culture lens, what we see is throughout much of the 20th century, rural Americans are portrayed as living in these small towns, bastions of goodness, of wholesomeness. We see a dramatic change. They become goofy and funny by the Beverly Hillbillies, hee-haw, we see it in the 1960s and 70s. We also get, by the 1970s, a movement towards what we call the rural redneck right nightmare, right? So this is deliverance. Almost all horror films in the 1980s and 1990s are set in rural communities. Shortly after that, we get the rural reality show, upwards of 160 Rural reality shows were on the air at one time, depicting Americans as maybe lovable, but surely different and goofy. So what we get over the time is a false story, a story about a very different people, maybe at points lovable, but often something to be feared, something threatening. We ask a series of questions of our rural respondents in our survey of how they feel about this perception. And they're not happy about it. You know, it's true that Hollywood doesn't get urban areas right either or suburban areas, but rural residents are pretty resentful the way they've been portrayed in popular culture. So that's the first piece. The other piece is the news media. We should have mentioned in our brief bios, we're somewhat rare for academics. We are rural residents ourselves. And that doesn't mean that we uh, sympathize, I think, with the rural voter or share all of the characteristics, but we do live in rural communities. And I think a lot of the stories, the narratives, and the portrayals of rural voters, especially since the election of Donald Trump in 2016, have been overly simplistic and at times disparaging, almost vindictively so. And Dan and I set out to do some of the journalistic work and correcting the portrayals of rural Americans because so much of that story has not been told and is not being told. I do think that there is this idea, at least in advertising and political discourse, that the rural voter is like the real American. Your thoughts on that and how did that become the thing? On how this myth emerged, we think it was in large measure a tool used by savvy GOP operatives, really beginning in the 1980s. And it's a very powerful idea that the last bastions of what is good in America, what's wholesome in America, is in the rural countryside. And it fed into this place-based, shared fate development in rural America, where residents think the rest of government is out to change their life, is out to destroy communities that they love. It is a place rich in landscapes and in spirit, fiercely proud of its Appalachian heritage. But amid that beauty and strength, the towns of Western North Carolina are struggling and many feel no one is listening. I don't have a savings. Um, it is pretty much paycheck to paycheck. I don't think politicians realize how many of us, you know, this is the face of poverty. It is a myth, and we, we actually talk about in the book how it is something that not just Republicans often refer to, but even left 
progressive Democrats will sometimes refer to the heartland being the real measure, the real bellwether of America. It's just not true, but it's, it was a handy tool in the 1980s and 90s. We charted from Ronald Reagan to Pat Buchanan, and of course, Sarah Palin and John McCain used it extensively. And President Obama rather famously said that these voters cling to guns and religion. Do you think that, or through your studies, have you found that rural voters tend to vote conservatively? There's no doubt that when it comes to how rural voters cast their ballot every election day, they lean right. And this is the more or less the first half of the book project and first half of the, of the rural voter study is trying to understand how historically unprecedented Republican dominance of rural areas is. Please let me know how you came up with this data. We think it's honestly one of the largest data-driven studies of the rural voter ever conducted. So there are two pieces. There's the aggregate study. We take a look at county election returns all the way back across the nation, all the way back to 1800, a massive data set. And then to get perceptions and attitudes, we talked to 14,000 Americans. We did three waves of surveys. We talked to 14,000 Americans, including 10,000 rural voters. Uh, we believe, and your listeners could correct us, that there's never been such a large study of rural voters ever conducted. 10,000 is an awful lot. From an outsider, it seems like the rural voter would be a natural fit for the traditional Democratic Party, right? You got the New Deal, Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. These are all social programs that benefit rural voters somewhat. So why are they not reliable Democratic voters? What happened? How did we lose these voters? You're spot on. So there's this lingering question, why when a disproportionate share of welfare payments, for instance, goes to rural communities, in part because rural America is poorer, sicker, older, why is there such antagonism, particularly federal government intervention? In a couple of seconds, what takes Dan and I a few, uh, maybe 200 pages or so to work out, we certainly see this as a part of a larger shift in Republican voting, a reaction to the 1960s culture war politics, what Robert Novak famously characterized as the response to the party of amnesty, abortion, and acid. So there's no doubt that rural voting, for the exact reasons that she picked up on, is partly a function of the conservative realignment, the fact that older Americans, regardless of where they live, are more likely to vote Republican more like the Christian Americans, regardless of where they live, are more likely to vote conservative. But Dan and I, importantly, one of the core pieces of our argument, say that's not enough. That can't be enough to explain why some rural communities are overwhelmingly Republican. 85% historically unprecedented numbers. And what Dan and I ultimately argue is that it's a mix of these broader changes in the conservative coalition, but there's also pieces specific to the rural story that turned rural America away from the Democratic Party, the party that championed NAFTA, party that championed top-down centralized control and planning of this is going back 50, 60 years, but you know, still within people's memories and their families' memories. 
championed policies that led to the decimation of family farming and the consolidation of agriculture. Now, don't get me wrong, Republicans weren't standing there saying, stop, don't do that. They were jumping on board, but Republicans at least still showed up. And Republicans still were willing to run those races. And I think it comes down to making feel like rural America was still a place that was okay to live in, even if mainstream Republicans, uh, none of the presidential candidates in the GOP field or leaders, are from rural areas and wouldn't dare live in a rural area. It's a little bit of that bottom-up, top-down story. I want to try to go through some of the stereotypes and see what the data says. First, one of the stereotypes is that there is a great degree of racism in these voters. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's a great degree of racism in the American electorate. So we devote an entire chapter to this question because undeniably, it's one of the most important questions, not just about rural voting, but about American voting. The first thing we have to think about is how do we measure racism in the electorate? As social scientists, we do not just go out there, as is commonly believed, including by some of our students, we do not just go out there and ask people, hey, are you racist? What Dan and I do is we follow a, boy, it's about a 40-year-old methodology now developed by one of my teachers and her colleague, Lynn Sanders and Don Kender at the University of Michigan to understand racialized attitudes about hard work, or what we often call racial resentment. And we ask questions about if Black people just worked harder, would they get a credit? Or generations of slavery and state-based discrimination have made it more difficult for Black people to move up the social ladder. And undeniably, you are more likely to agree with that question if you are a rural American Regardless of your race, I'm just going to compare white rural Americans to white urban America, and you are more likely to agree with that statement. But a majority of rural Americans do not agree with that statement. Do you feel as if simply having a D next to your name is why you lost? Yes. Patty Ruff lost her state house seat representing Clayton County in 2016. We had her picture taken with Hillary Clinton stopped by, as all candidates do. And I foolheartedly, I guess, now in retrospect. But I, I posted it. I was a proud mom. And I posted it on Facebook. And they used that. They cut my Just son out. Literally, and, you yep. have a picture with Hillary Clinton. Yep. And that's all they did. A majority of rural Americans do not agree with the idea that blacks do not try hard enough or that racial problems are rare. A majority of rural Americans will say, yes, white people have advantages. While on average, rural America is more likely to hold racially resentful attitudes. And I think that's the first takeaway point. The second is that it doesn't explain every rural America. And I don't think that entirely explains why somebody like Donald Trump does well in rural America in the particular degree that he does when he does well in suburban America 
and urban America as well. One of the findings that stood out in our chapter on race was the intersection of notions of hard work. You know, there are a few distinct cultural elements in rural America, maybe not as many as you would think, but there are some. And one of them is a steadfast belief in the power of hard work. What we tried to do, and this is very difficult to do, is disentangle attitudes towards race and perceptions of hard work. Is it that they disagree that African-Americans have a difficult time because of centuries of discrimination, because they're racist, or because they believe so firmly that rolling up your sleeves can get you where you want to go? So it's a difficult area to study. It's a difficult topic to dive into, but there's no question, and others have found this as well, that this connection to a steadfast belief in hard work, it's also part of this story. Yeah, there's definitely a pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of mentality. And I think that becomes difficult when you're dealing with an oppressed, marginalized community where there's not even boot stores for them to put on to pull up their boots. I think when you're looking at these marginalized and oppressed communities, and I also think that there's a sense of contradiction there as well, because you're looking at that other thing that is such a racist statement that the GOP has been able to use to induce fear, which is the taking away your job. So how could they both be not working hard enough and working so hard that they might take away your job? Obviously, so much of this plays into the stories that we're told and the stories that we believe, right? Because we believe the stories we are told. But I'm also wondering what effects of Fox News and other right-wing media, are they radicalizing rural voters? Are they the sole way that rural voters are getting their information? That's a great question, and we spent a whole chapter exploring it. There's a couple pieces to the story. First piece is that there's a lot less local news across America, and particularly in rural America. One of the stories here is that the decline, the withering of local news in rural America. We now have what are called news deserts. Rural Americans are more and more dependent on statewide and nationalized news stories, even when there might be a branch of a large outlet in rural areas are closing up as well. So what we find overall is that rural Americans are paying less attention to the news than are suburban and rural Americans. Now, are rural Americans linked to Fox, those that are paying attention? Absolutely. But so are conservatives in suburban America and in urban America. It's not a rural phenomenon. But there is one key distinction that we make in the book in this chapter, and that is there is a small group of voters we call the rural rabble-rousers that make up about 10% of rural Americans who are particularly attuned to the news and all forms of news, right? They're on the internet, they're listening to the radio, they're reading books, they're reading papers. This group is deeply engaged and they are very different than the other 90%. They are the ones 
that are painting their barns, that are going to the town hall meetings. They're the ones holding up the signs and storming a legislator's office building. They're the ones we find that are believing in conspiracy theories. Rural Americans, the 90%, are no more likely to believe in these wild conspiracy theories than are other Americans. It's just that this group, this small pod of about 10%, they're the ones that dominate the news coverage. They're the ones that the reporters connect with when they do go out into the hinterlands. They're the ones that are showing up at the town hall meetings and yelling and screaming, right? They're the clickbait. They're the easiest source to get. And unfortunately, that's coloring our perception of rural Americans. Feeding into the stereotypes. You got exactly right. And if I could just add one thing, because I think your earlier point about we believe the stories were were told is, is spot on and, and definitely that is a, a major theme of our book. And I appreciate you bringing that up. Now, what happens when you're not listening to many stories because you feel like mainstream journalism and newspapers and journalists don't care about you? And, and there's a couple of little statistics that I always have in the back of my mind when I'm thinking about rural voters. And one of them is rural voters compared to suburban and urban voters are about half as likely to follow local news. They're much less likely to follow national news, half as likely to subscribe to a local newspaper, almost a majority, whereas only about 20% of urban voters say that the news that I read is irrelevant to my community. And when there's these vacuums of news coverage, either institutionally from these news deserts or just the stories that get on the front page of of national media outlets. Well, I think there are two things we need to look at. One is the total loss of newspapers, uh, because newspapers are often the prime, if not the sole source of news and information, especially in small and mid-sized communities. So over the last decade and a half, we've seen 1,800 newspapers disappear off the landscape of the U.S. But there's also the equally troubling situation that we have with the surviving newspapers, where we've lost more than half of the newspaper newsroom uh, journalists that we had just in 2008. You know, rural America turns away. Okay, and then what about, just to throw another wrench into this all, what about the news that we're getting from social media and how the algorithm is not expanding anyone's views and feeding into the likes? The echo chamber, what does that do? We think it's powerful and it's of concern, but it's of concern for all Americans. It's happening in, you know, Staten Island. The question is, are we finding this sort of algorithm-based social media activism more pronounced in rural areas? And our data says it's not there. It's actually not true. Now, if we're worried about the echo chamber on the right and left, you should be, but it's not exclusive. It's not especially sharp in rural communities. Now, with the exception of this group, this 10% that are deeply engaged, and that's a very powerful echo chamber that they're in. And this is, to some extent, what's driving perceptions and it's driving the tone of politics in rural communities is this small group, honestly. Okay, and then also religion. What is the role of religion, especially when you're looking at evangelical and politically or socially conservative religion in these communities with views on major social issues like abortion or LGBTQ rights? How does that all play in? 
I'll admit, I think it's good for researchers to know, come across things that surprise them, that they're going to cut against their priors, even as, as careful students of this. And one of them was on religious attitudes, a much more complex story than the one we thought was there. Um, we sort of approached it, I certainly approached it as one thinking it was going to be related to the fact that there's more whites and that they tend to be older in rural areas, and that naturally these religious patterns would follow. For a variety of factors that Dan and I get into the book, though, you're actually less likely to attend church if you live in a rural community compared to suburbia, uh, but also compared to urban America. And some of this has to do, I'm thinking about the church I pass on my way to work every day that has closed down because it can't maintain a congregation. You're just as likely to pray, but we actually note uh, slightly lessened levels of um, Bible literalism, Bible is the literal word of God. When you think about developments in modern Christianity, your mind is instantly drawn to big mega church TV pastors, right? Huge churches. That ain't in rural America. You can't sustain that. And in fact, we, there's again one of genuine surprise. Rural Americans, when we ask them about their feelings towards mega church pastors, are the most hostile to that type of evangelical leadership mm -hmm. than any other American, urban or suburban. And so no doubt, again, this isn't an apology. It's a way of trying to understand the nuance. No doubt Christian values are dominant in rural areas compared to other religious tenets or religious beliefs. But when you see how that begins to influence politics, again, that nuance and how religion is actually practiced and how faith manifests shows up at the ballot box. Around the time we were finalizing the book, we found out we had some interesting cases where various states were holding ballot referendum after the overturning of Roe. And notably, rural America, counties that went overwhelmingly for Trump, were a part of the blockade against constitutionalizing extreme abortion restrictions. Rural Americans, on average, were more likely to support those restrictions, but they were rural America was also a part of the majority that stopped those efforts when they actually had a choice. Not their state legislatures, not their state representatives, but when they actually showed up and got to cast their own ballot. My head is spinning from this conversation. And I think just because of the misconceptions. And I know you said before that the 1980s was when the misconceptions began to be a part of the political strategy. Let's unpack that a little bit. When did the misconceptions start about these voters? Throughout American history, there, we have seen a divide between urban areas and rural areas. In fact, we might go back all the way to the debate between Tom Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton that was really about the future of the nation. Would it be an industrial urban nation or would it be an agrarian nation? We trace that story and what we find is that very often there are regional or state-based rural voters, but it's not, it wasn't universally true, right? When I was young, the upper Midwest and even the Western area in the United States, the Rocky Mountain states were often very progressive, right? Remember, George McGovern was from South Dakota. Tom Daschle was from South Dakota and Frank Church from Idaho and so forth and so on. We begin to see the nationalization of the rural voter really in the 1980s. And I think there were three forces that came together. There were bottom-up concrete changes that we've been talking about some of them dealing with the corporate agriculture, the decline of the family farm. Linked to that 
were also the decline of manufacturing. In rural areas, manufacturing has always been really important. We see the steady decline after World War II, and then by NAFTA, we have this decimation. 63,000 factories have closed in America since NAFTA. We talk about the NAFTA ghost town throughout America. A lot of Americans haven't gotten a pay raise in years, and they can't find jobs that pay enough to actually cover their expenses. And trade agreements like NAFTA are a big part of that because NAFTA's core text actually included incentives to promote the outsourcing of good middle-class jobs. Many of these places, the one factory, the one mine that shuts down was the livelihood of the community. So we have that piece. The second piece was the cultural, pop cultural change that we're talking about. There's a turn in the way rural Americans are portrayed in television, literature, films. And the final piece was these savvy politicians using this rural, this real America rhetoric as their tool for getting ahead, getting this voting block in their corner. Do you think that the American electorate is dangerously divided, or do you think that's also a story that we're telling that people are believing? We are divided geographically. One of the questions we often get is, was this a, a Trump phenomenon? One of the most stunning figures of our book is the decline of support for Democrats in rural areas beginning in the 1980s, and it is steep and it is significant. And Donald Trump is a continuation of that very dramatic decline. Take a look at where members of the House come from. The Republican members are nearly all rural areas. State legislatures, we spent a lot of time talking about the change in state legislatures. So one thing's for sure, this nationalization of the rural voter is comprehensive. It's throughout America, not just at the presidential level. It's all the way down into state legislatures. And it is dramatic. When I grew up, rural areas in upstate New York, yeah, they were conservative. They were often Republican. It was GOP areas. The small cities were more Democratic. Out in the rural areas, the Republican voter might get 63 or 65% of the vote, 59, 52, more than a majority. These days, we're seeing huge numbers we're seeing 70, 75, and 80% support for. It's very hard to be a Democrat in these communities. We talk about in the book, Democrats really not wanting to have posters or bumper stickers. It's very hard. So it's significant. I will add one other item. It's also fair to say that the division that we see in rural America is mirrored in urban America. Urban America is blue as rural America is red. We think it's a huge problem, Alyssa. We think it's a big deal. Okay, so then here's the million-dollar question. How do we fix it? Is it fixable? Well, it's nothing quick. Nick, are you there? I don't want to hog this thing. I am. Look, if Dan and I had the answer to that question, we would have sold a million books by now. We would have been in the White House. But we don't set out to write a playbook for the Democratic Party. And, and to be very clear, Dan and I do not write a pro-Democrat book. We've tried our hardest to write a pro-democracy book. Political scientists think about problems and, and potential policy solutions. Uh, even as co-authors, he and I tend to disagree on, on what might fix it, how much sense certain policy interventions make in reimagining a rural economy for the 21st century. But we are convinced that one thing that is 
hurting us all, but especially hurting rural America, is the lack of a competitive political landscape. And I think the first thing we have to do in order to correct that is to recognize that, to speak, I think, openly about the stereotypes that you centered our conversation on and correct them and to call them what they are, which are stereotypes. I'll admit, sometimes in writing this book and in talking about rural America, it feels like rural America is the last group in society, American society, in which it's okay to openly mock. They're not the only ones that are mocked or stereotyped. That's not what I'm saying. But if any other politician or mainstream journalist holds stories as simplistic about the rubes living out there in the countryside, we would openly and correctly call them out. That's not the case with rural voting. Don't you think that there is a sense, too, of surrendering to the norm almost with the political parties? It's like you hear so often that the Democrats don't spend money in certain districts because they know they can't win there. And so there's just no competitiveness and vice versa. The Republicans spending money in urban areas. So how do we get our two-party political system to invest in areas they don't think they can win in? They don't invest in it because the current divide works for them. The only people that benefit from the rural-urban divide are elected officials who profit electorally from these myths. I want Dan to get on this, but I just wanted to raise that point that it is serving somebody's self-interest, but quite well. And it's not people living in rural areas or urban areas or suburban areas. Yes, you're right. It could be a self-fulfilled prophecy, right? Why go there? We've got no chance of winning. We do talk about a number of examples of not just Democrats winning in rural areas, but pretty darn progressive Democrats winning in rural areas. It's not impossible. The key, we argue, is not so much shifting your policy positions, because we don't think that rural voters are all that far, but rather it has to do with authenticity. It's about a genuine connection to these communities and also a deep understanding of the particular issues facing each rural community. And when you have politicians that you can do that, from Andy Bashir in Kentucky to Jared Golden in the second district of Maine, they can get through it. Now, they're not winning with overwhelming numbers, but Jared Golden, he's a Democrat in the second most rural congressional district in the country. And he's not a far-right politician. He's got a couple positions historically. Gun control was a little bit more, a lot more conservative than your average Democrat. But on health care and a bunch of other issues, boy, he's out there on the left. But he surely knows the district and they know him. Sometimes things happen that bring your worst nightmares to life. Yesterday, this is what happened in Lewiston. At a time like this, a leader is forced to grapple with things that are far greater than his or herself. Humility is called for as accountability is sought by the victims of a tragedy such as this one. Out of fear of this dangerous world that we live in and my determination to protect my own daughter and wife in our home and in our community, because of a false confidence that our community was above this and that we could be in full control among many other misjudgments, I have opposed efforts to ban deadly weapons of war like the assault rifle used to carry out this crime. The time has now come for me to take responsibility for this failure. We think it's possible. You've got to show up. 
You've got to show up, take it on the cuff, a few losses, fight in the trenches. And we think it's possible to reinvigorate the two-party system, even in rural areas. I think Democrats living outside of rural communities, I, I don't say this as a Democrat, I think they need to celebrate a little bit of uh, diversity within the party. I found it shocking and unfortunate how many can celebrate the fact that Joe Manchin from rural West Virginia, one of your four states, it's actually rural, majority rural, that Joe Manchin was leaving. Now, I get you might not agree with him on every single issue, but when Joe Manchin leaves the ticket, the systemic effects are what worry me, not any particular vote that he does or does not take. But I worry now where the Republican Party goes when they don't have to try and beat somebody that can win in that area. I know for me, someone like Manchin, in any other time or place, I feel his political platform would be celebrated. But because it was on the cusp of Trump, because it was as we were watching Roe v. Wade be overturned, because we were just watching this fall in our democracy, it felt like it became more personal to, I think, in a national sense. Whereas any other time you could go, ah, oh, you know what, West Virginia, they're rural, he represents his constituents' values. But when so much was going on socially and politically, I think the micro made up the macro, and it felt like it was personal to me that he was not standing up for our rights in his vote, regardless of where he's from or who his constituents are. I think any other time, yeah, that would have been celebrated. And we can look at certainly many people who you go, you know what, they represent who their constituents are, and I get it. But it just feels like now it is so weighted. And in order to set us back on a path that feels equal and equitable, that we need people to vote for the betterment of women at large, not just the women of West Virginia. Does that make sense? I think it makes a lot of sense. And you'd be surprised, just a quick tangent, we took a look at attitudes towards women between rural and non-rural voters. And you'd be surprised that uh, rural voters, including rural men, are no more likely to hold misogynist positions than non-rural Americans. In fact, they're a little bit better. But your point's well taken. We live in really tense times. Our argument is that if you let progressive Democrats in rural areas do their thing, connect with people, give them the license to be a bit different, right? There's really, there are dividends. You know, we talk about Tim Ryan, for example, in Ohio. Look, at the race against J.D. Vance. Now, he lost that race. What he did, it was really close, much closer than Biden was to Donald Trump. And he did much better in rural areas. Is he a moderate or a right-wing Democrat? Absolutely not. But he knows Ohio. He knows and feels their pain, to use Clinton's language. That's what we argue in the end, that Democrats have to show up and the national Democrats have to afford a degree of flexibility to let them do their thing in their states and in their districts.
I just thought about Gretchen Whitmer and how she's done such an incredible job pushing policy, equitable policy, but also staying true to who her constituents are and who the people of Michigan are. We see that in Maine. If Janet Mills is nothing, she's a Mainer. She is known and she wins in this state, not because she's in the Maine is to a large measure. Southern Maine is very progressive. She doesn't fit the bill perfectly, but she is Maine through and through. So I think you're I think you're right. It matters. You know what? In all of this conversation, I'm most hopeful that this book is out there because I feel as though it's time to pull the curtain back and open people's eyes to all of this. And it's so very important, especially coming up on the 2024 election. Do you have any predictions on what's going to happen in 2024? It's going to be a tough night for Democrats in rural America. (laughs) That's about the safest prediction I could come up with. But the question is how tough it's going to be, right? As I said, in some of these places, Joe Biden was getting 15 and 18 percent. This is a big piece of the electorate, right? This is bigger than the African-American coalition for the Democrats. It's about the same size as young voters for the Democrats. If Joe Biden and the Democrats can take a chip out of the Republican lead in rural areas, it could make a huge difference. Odd for me to be the optimist and Dan and my duo, but I do find it noteworthy and and admirable that at least somebody in the White House has told Joe Biden he needs to show up. At the time that you and I are speaking, he's just finishing a two-week tour of rural America. And Listening to him talk, and I don't think anybody can say that the current president is the now the most rhetorically gifted individual, but listening to, to him talk out in rural America, he does seem to recognize some of the things that Dan and I have written. He's speaking to rural Americans as people that want to live and stay rural. Now, I think he's unique as a Democrat in all honesty for, for speaking that language. I want to celebrate the fact that he is at least trying. His predecessor, or his uh, Democratic predecessor, did not. Hillary Clinton did not. Clinton seemed to openly welcome the fact that she did so poorly in rural America. Speaking at a fundraiser on Friday night here in New York City, Clinton said half of Trump supporters are, quote, a basket of deplorables. And this morning, the Trump campaign is out with a new campaign ad making sure voters hear that statement. We've been asked, could it get much worse? Yes, it could. But right now, somebody at least is thinking that it doesn't have to get worse. It's not inevitable to do so poorly. It's so interesting to me, though, because as a progressive Democrat, which my heart lies in progressive ideals, I'm looking at Joe Biden and I'm being like, he is totally conservative as far as middle ground Democrat. So I would think logically, that he would actually be able to resonate with rural America because of his sort of moderate take on policy. I think we've been able to push him further to the left, but I don't think his natural state of being is as progressive as we've coerced him to be. I think your characterization of Biden isn't that far off when you look at how he relates to other Democrats. He's center of the party, if that much. But it's also important to note, like, how do most make decisions at the ballot box? Most are not 
as deeply tuned into the policy debates as, as you and I are. I always say it's a privilege to worry about policy because most people are just trying to get food on the table. That's a very nice way of saying that. There's a lot of truth to that. That's why so much of the book, so little of the book, is about these deep policy debates and much more about the stories that people have told themselves about who to trust, who not to trust, who gets them, who actually cares about them. And again, just one of those little statistics that I just always have reading in my ears. When we talk about a crisis in confidence or a crisis of trust in the democratic institutions in this country, and it's true everywhere, it is nowhere more pervasive than in rural communities. Rural communities do not trust government. And they surely are not going to trust somebody who seems to stand, however moderate, center-left, center, whatever, is going to tell them that, don't worry, government's got your back. Even though you might have a good reason to, in your own mind and looking out in your own community, to believe that is simply not true. Let me add a real quick story vignette that we tell in the book about the difference between Hillary Clinton's meeting with coal miners and Donald Trump's meeting with coal miners. When Hillary Clinton went to this particular spot to talk about the future of coal, she basically said, we're going to end coal mining in America. We're going to put an end to coal. But don't worry, we'll get you a job. We'll get you a job in this green economy, which, by the way, I read in the New York Times, less than 1% of coal miners are now working in green industries, right? The ex-coal miners. Anyhow, she was very, don't worry, we're going to get you jobs in the, the green industries. You'll be just fine. Contrast that with Donald Trump. Now, when he came, he basically said, I'm going to revise coal, revive coal, which, of course, wasn't going to be true. But he also expressed empathy and an understanding that they liked living in a coal mining town. They liked working in coal mines. There was something that they were proud of, right? So Joe Biden has the ability, has the knack to make those sorts of connections. I think better than Hillary Clinton, to be honest. I think Nick's right. If he can demonstrate a genuine understanding, a genuine concern for what rural Americans confront, then the policy, the exact policy positions will melt away a bit. It's going to be a tough slog, but I don't know. I think Biden can make those sorts of connections. I think that's who he is. So just to round that up, and you sort of already gave that answer in your last answer, but I always ask of my guests in my last question, what gives you hope? I think we go through cycles in America. I think we're in a bit of a trough right now. I don't think that we're locked here. I'm hopeful that each side can discover the humanity of the other side, that it doesn't have to be that the opposition is evil or bad or un-American. I want to get back to the spot where we just disagree on a policy question, maybe passionately disagree. That's the old school. But I'm optimistic that we'll do that. To be frank, I think that's a post, I hope that's a post-Trump America. And we might be in a rough spot for a year or so, but I'm optimistic about that. Like I said, uh, Dan usually plays the optimist of our two. I think what gives me hope is we've chatted about our work mostly to non-rural people who are tired from looking from afar and really just want to see our common bond. 
so many times we had to be really careful to make this point several times in the book. So many times in writing a book on how the other half lives, how the other 20% of America lives, Dan and I just continually came back to this idea that is the divide just all in our heads? We're not all that different, you and I, kind of thing. And there is some truth to that. These are deep-seated narratives. They're going to take a long time to disrupt. But there really is nothing inevitable about why they exist. They don't have to. Well, Nick and Dan, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. What people want in rural America is not substantially different than what Americans want all across this country. I grew up in a town of 90 people. My family was one-tenth the population, small farming community. And so that's been my history and my background. I started a project called One Country to try and reintroduce the Democratic Party to rural America and rural America to the Democratic Party. I saw over a long period of time that more and more rural voters were basically not only abandoning the Democratic Party, but also demonizing the Democratic Party. I think there's a fair number of people in the Democratic Party who think that all you've got to do is get out your suburban vote, get out your urban vote, and you can win. You'll continue to lose if you don't broaden your appeal and don't have the discussion with rural America. When I travel abroad, one of the things people in other countries often say about the U.S. is that it's huge. And compared to much of the world, that's true. In a country so vast, the complexities of the social fabric have to be influenced by geography. So why is it that we so often try and reduce these complexities into simple buzzwords? Why do we try to pigeonhole groups of people? I fear that it's because it makes it so easy to ignore them, to disenfranchise entire groups of people for political convenience. It's maybe the thing that will do the most harm to the Democratic Party if we don't change. We need rural voters, and more importantly, they need us. They need a party that will, in fact, enact the economic changes that will help rural voters that will bring education and technology and clean water and the benefits that many suburban Americans take for granted. It's not about the politics. Those will take care of themselves if we just take care of the people. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.